0: 1626 is a a year to remember in the history of uh, the United States of America, at least according to uh, the way it was taught in school as I was a boy. 1626, a uh, Dutchman, Dutch explorer and trader, purchased Manhattan Island for the sum of $24 dollars worth of beads, blankets, and hatchets. Now, there are some that dispute whether that is indeed true or just some sort of legend. I'm not going to enter into that. Uh, I learned it as being true. But the point of it all is that for really what amounts to a pittance, an amazing piece of property was purchased, right? I have no idea what Manhattan Island is worth today, but it's it's got to be a lot of money. So someone, in effect, traded land of great value for that which was a mere pittance. Jesus asked the question, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? He asked that question of his disciples in the context of turning his face like flint for Jerusalem, heading to his own crucifixion. About six months left in his public ministry and indeed in his life. And he is turning now to head to Jerusalem to be crucified and to die. And he is trying to tell his disciples that and they just won't listen. In fact, Peter even rebukes him when Christ tries to tell him that. And then Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. What will a man give in exchange for his own soul? What will you sell it for? Open your Bibles, if you would please, to John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28. This morning we are going to continue in our examination of Pilate's six increasingly desperate attempts to release Jesus so that we will remember that to turn from Christ is to crucify your own soul. As we go through this lengthy narrative together, that's the unifying theme of it all, is that Pilate is desperate to get rid of Christ. And he tries six different ways to do it other than the straightforward way. (laughs) which is to release him. And in the process of doing that, Christ crucifies his own soul. We looked last time at verses 28 through 32. Let me just read it. They led Jesus, therefore, from Caiaphas into the praetorium. And it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Pilate, therefore, went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Pilate, therefore, said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death, that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. This was Pilate's, first attempt here. Take him yourselves, he said, and judge him. Pilate's first attempt to get rid of this problem, this Galilean rabbi who just a week earlier came into the city on the back of a donkey with throngs of worshipers spilling out into the city streets and pouring out palm branches and and their cloaks to pave a carpet for him to come in, who now has been arrested and turned over to Pilate to deal with. And Pilate knows that it is because of envy that the uh, Jewish authorities and leadership have done this. And so he wants no part of it. And he says, take him yourself and judge him. And, of course, the Jewish authorities, they're not interested in that, as I labored with you last time to point out. They want him crucified. Dead is not good enough. Crucified is what they insist upon. It is their insistence here and it will continue throughout this whole narrative nothing but crucifixion will do now if we were to take the time and we're not going to do it this morning to just begin to look at the comparative account over in luke 23 we would note that when pilate says take him yourself and crucify him and they and they say to him we're not permitted to put anyone to death it doesn't end there They actually begin to heap upon Jesus their accusations, their charges against him. And it's threefold. They accuse Jesus in Luke 23, verse 2, of misleading the nation, leading the nation astray. They accuse Jesus of forbidding the people to pay their taxes. And they accuse Jesus of claiming to be a king. A king. Well, Pilate has no choice now. If they are accusing Christ of insurrection, of claiming to be a rival king to Caesar, of instructing the people not to pay taxes to the Roman government, then Pilate, as the Roman governor, has no choice but to investigate this allegation, and that's what he does. Verse 33. Pilate, therefore, entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? That's the accusation against you. Is it true? And in fact, Pilate's going to, going to ask him three questions during this interview. He's going to, the first one is, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus will respond. Pilate will then say to him, Well, I am not a Jew, am I? And then he will say, Are you a king? The point of it all is, is that Pilate must ferret out whether Jesus is a king. If he's a king, then he's a rival to Rome, and if he's a rival to Rome, then Pilate has no choice but to crucify him. That's the gist of it all. So Pilate says to him, verse 33, Are you the King of the Jews? Now Jesus, who has been silent all of the time up to this, refusing to respond to the allegations of the of the Sanhedrin, now opens his mouth in private with Pilate And speaks, verse 34, answering, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Jesus responds with a clarifying question of his own. What he's saying to Pilate is, you're asking me, am I a king? Before I can answer the question, I need to know what it is that you're really asking. Are you asking me if I am a king As a threat to Rome along political lines which you're used to dealing with? I've got one answer for that. Or are you asking me whether I am a king in terms of Old Testament biblical prophecy? I have a different answer for that. And so he says, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Am I a rival king to Caesar? No. Am I the Old Testament mediatorial king prophesied by Daniel to come to establish his kingdom and throne upon this earth, a spiritual kingdom with physical manifestation of it? Yes. Yes. Clarify yourself, Pilate. What kind of king are you asking me about? Verse 35, Pilate answers him, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you up to me. What have you done? Verse 36, Jesus answers his question now. It's been clarified. Pilate is not asking him, are you a political king? And so Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate, I'm not the kind of threat that Rome has to worry about. The evidence of that is right before your eyes. If I were really a political king, Pilate, I'd have an army to defend me. My own subjects wouldn't be the ones who have turned me over. But don't mistake it, Pilate. I am a king. I am a king. Pilate, verse 37, says, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly, I am a king. For this I have been born. For this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate, I am a king. But I am a different kind of king than you're used to. Yes, I am a king. I was born to be a king. I was brought into this world. I came into this world to be a king. I came from another realm, Pilate, into this, to be a king. My kingdom is based on truth. It is a kingdom of truth. In fact, earlier that evening, Jesus had said to his own disciples, I am the way the truth, and the life, right? No man comes to the Father. No man enters into my kingdom except by me. He's engaging Pilate here in a discussion of his own soul. Yes, Pilate, I'm a king. I came into the world to be a king, but my kingdom is a kingdom of truth. Are you interested? Are you interested, Pilate's? Verse 38, look at his answer. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Jesus is engaging him in a discussion of his own soul. He's put to rest the the. Fear that he is somehow a political rival to Rome. Pilate, don't worry about that. That's not who I am. But don't miss the point. I am a king. And I am a king who makes a claim upon not only you, but everyone. And my kingdom is about truth, Pilate. Are you interested in talking about truth? And Pilate shuts him off. What is truth? What is truth? And he walks away. How many times have you tried to have a conversation with someone about spiritual truth? And they shut it off and walk away, right? They're not interested. They don't have time for it. They turn and they walk away. And that's what Pilate has done here. He has turned and he's walked away. And beloved, in the process of doing this, he is crucifying his own soul. He is turning from the one who is truth, the one who is the way to God. And he's turning to his own fate. So when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and he says, I find no guilt in him. But it's not over there. The Jewish authorities will not let it be over. They'll continue to clamor for his crucifixion. And in the process of clamoring, they say that he has deceived the people all over Galilee. And Pilate hears that and he says, oh, Galilee, hmm. That's where Herod Antipas is in charge. I know what I'll do. Like all good executives, I will pass the buck. And so he's going to hand Jesus off to Herod at this point. Again, he's attempting to get away from Christ. Every time he comes near him, it unsettles him. And so his second attempt here is to send him to Herod. And to look for that interview, we have to turn there to over to Luke 23. So we'll go ahead and turn you there to Luke 23 and verse 4. Pilate said to the chief priests and the multitudes, I find no guilt in this man, but they kept on insisting, saying he stirs up the people teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. But when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now Herod was glad, was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for they had been at enmity. With each other. Jesus sends him over to Pilate. He says, I know how I will get rid of this. This person. This thorn in my side, I will send him to Herod. And so he does. But when Jesus arrives at Herod, Herod is saying, "Okay, now's my opportunity. I've heard about this miracle worker all over Galilee, and I want to see him do something. But Jesus will neither perform a miracle nor even respond to Herod's questions. Or the continuing accusations of the Sanhedrin who followed him over to Herod's palace. And so when Herod is done with him, he mocks him. He treats him with contempt and then he sends him back. And when he arrives back in Pilate's, or Pilate's lap, Pilate concludes he's innocent again. Verse 15 of Luke 23 Well, 14, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. Behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Pilate's problem is intensifying. It's intensifying. He's sent him to Herod to get rid of him, thinking Herod will deal with the case. But Herod doesn't want anything to do with it either. And so Herod sends it back. And so now Jesus stands back before Pilate. He can't get rid of him. He's rejected him. He's not interested in dealing with Jesus on any kind of spiritual level. But he does not want to be drawn into this execution, this legal murder. But he will not dismiss the charges. And so back to John 18, and Pilate develops another scheme. Pilate's third attempt. I can't give him over to the Jews. No, they're insisting on his crucifixion. I can't send him to Pilate and let him do it. No, Pilate sends him back to me. I know what I'll do. You have a custom at your Passover. Passover. The custom is to release one captive prisoner each year in commemoration of the fact that the nation was released from bondage in Egypt the original Passover. I know what I'll do, Pilate thinks. What I will do is I will... Offer him to the people. I will go around the authorities. They're the ones who hate his guts. They're the ones who have put him here because of envy. They're the ones who see him as a rival. I will go directly to the people. That's what I'll do. I mean, again, after all, it was only on the prior Sunday, right? The Passover or or the Palm Sunday when he came into the city and all the people went out to him and thronged to him and, and said how great he was and Hosanna to the son of David, Messiah. That's what I'll do. I'll go right to the people. That's my plan. Verse 39, John 18. But you have a custom, he says, that I should release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? This is perfect. I will just release Jesus. But there's a problem here. Pilate miscalculates the people. I think what actually is going on here textually, and just mark this down in the notes and and you look at it later, over in Matthew 27, verses 17 to 19, Matthew tells us, that Pilate's wife comes to him at this time. And she has had a dream. And in the dream, she uh, she, this dream persuades her that, that Pilate should release Jesus. It should have nothing to do with this righteous man. And so I think what happens here is Pilate's plan of going to the people looks like it's going to work, but right at that moment, Pilate's wife comes to him and passes him a note and says... Don't have nothing to do with this man. Release this righteous man. And so Pilate's attention is momentarily diverted. He's considering the advice of his wife. And while he's doing that, the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, begin to agitate within the crowds for Barabbas. For Barabbas. And by the time Pilate gets his focus back on the situation at hand. By the time he, you know, he turns away from considering the note from his wife, back to the crowd, and he's expecting them to say, Release Jesus, he's the popular one. They respond with an answer that he can't fathom. Verse 40, Therefore they cry out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Barabbas was a murderer. Barabbas was an insurrectionist. Barabbas was everything that Jesus was not. The contrast is really amazing. Here is Jesus accused of insurrection and innocent, and then there is Barabbas, who was indeed an insurrectionist. And Pilate finds himself in a situation now where As a Roman governor sworn to protect the interests of Rome, he is about to release an insurrectionist from prison and crucify an innocent man. They've boxed him in. They're tightening the noose around him. Every direction he is turning is away from Christ. The logical, the natural, the place to go is to Jesus and to proclaim his release because he is innocent. But Pilate will not do that. And so every direction he turns, he's like a, a prize fighter where they the other opponent, what they call, cuts the ring and continually backs him into a corner. He's got no place to go. He's got no place to go. He was sure this one would work. I'll just release. I'll offer to release of Prisoner. He's popular with the people. The people will call for him. And yet when the time comes, they don't call for him. They call for Barabbas. It's interesting, by the way, back in uh, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 6, the disciples were very excited. This was, again, about the last six months of Jesus' ministry. The disciples are very excited because Jesus' popularity is very high at that time. And they're thinking, this thing is going well everybody's climbing on the Jesus bandwagon and, and you know, we're really taking off here. And Pilate says to them, beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. And his disciples think, well, the reason that he is warning us of these things is because we forgot to bring bread. You remember that? And he says, no, you blockheads, it doesn't have anything to do with bread. What it has to do with is the teaching of the pharisees and the sadducees that is the leaven that will ultimately leaven judaism against me their hatred of me will ultimately prevail and will turn the whole nation against me beloved here it is right here at the last moment they agitate the crowds and they turn the whole mob against christ So Pilate comes up with his fourth attempt to get rid of Jesus, John 19, verses 1 to 5. Each attempt, as I said, is becoming increasingly desperate. So Pilate's solution now is, I know what I'll do. I'll beat him up. I'll beat him up and then I will take him out and show him to the people all bloodied and beat up and then they will have pity on him and they'll release him. If they won't release him because of of the fact that they adore him, well, then I'll go the opposite direction and I'll make them pity him. So I'll beat him up. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him blows in the face. And Pilate came out again and said to him, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus therefore came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Behold the man. What a strategy. What a strategy. I'm going to beat him up And then display Him. And when He says, Behold the man, He's pointing to this broken, pathetic fragment of humanity standing there. And He's saying, Look at Him now. Look at Him now. Do you still want to crucify Him? Do you still want to crucify Him? His back has been flayed with a roman scourge leather thongs with little bits of bone or metal impregnated into the tips fully lacerated a crown of thorns they think it was thorns from a date palm some of which can grow 12 inches in diameter woven together and jammed onto his head the soldiers dressing him it says in a purple robe a robe of royalty and then mocking him. I mean, they're not ignorant of this. They're hearing the claims that he, uh, of the Jewish authorities, that he claims to be the king of the Jews. Well, if he's the king of the Jews and they despise the Jews, believe me. This is their chance to mock them. And so that's what the soldiers do, verse 3, right? They come up to him. <coughs> Excuse me. They say, Hail, king of the Jews. Kneel before him. And then as they stand up, they slap his face. It's a broken wreck. He's a shell of a man. Prophet Isaiah tells us that he is one before whom men hide their faces. He has been so brutalized. Swollen, bruised, bleeding. Behold the man. Look at this poor excuse for manhood. Do you think this is really a danger to the Roman throne? Can you really maintain that this broken man is somehow going to overthrow the mighty power of Rome? Look at him. Look at him. How can you seriously maintain such a charge? I'm sure the people reacted much like you're reacting now. Quiet. A hush comes over the crowd. They look at this poor, pathetic figure standing before them bloodied, battered. But before they can respond, like sharks sensing blood in the water. Verse 6, And therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify him. I said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. backfired again. It's backfired again. All of his principles by which he was brought up, the Roman regard for law and order and jurisprudence and all of that, he's trashed it all. His life is unraveling before his own eyes because he continues to turn away from the only solution to his problems just to embrace the truth. I find no guilt in him, he says, verse 6. And they tighten the noose, verse 7. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Now the real issue comes out. Verse 8, when Pilate therefore heard this statement, he was the more afraid. The more afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of the fact that his wife earlier had sent him a note that says, I have suffered greatly in a dream on account of this man. Have nothing to do with this righteous man. On account of the fact that he has had a conversation with Christ where Jesus said, I am a king and I came into this world a king. I was born to be a king and I was sent to be a king. Not a political kingdom, Pilate, a spiritual kingdom, truth. Here is a man who has stood before him and been railed on by his accusers and has been absolutely silent like a sheep before his shearers. Here is a man who has refused to defend himself. A man who has stood there with an amazing stately dignity through it all, answering only questions that he chooses to answer. A man in what is clearly innocent And a man who now, the truth comes out, claims to be the son of God. Yeah, Pilate's afraid. Pilate's a pagan. He's been brought up with stories of gods coming to earth and inhabiting human bodies in order to judge people. That's part of the pagan mythology and lore. Pilate's aware of that. And now, standing before him, it enters his mind that maybe this is who it is. Son of God. Now what do I do? Now what do I do? Verse 9, he entered into the praetorium again. And he said to Jesus... All by himself. Where are you from? Where are you from? Not what is your postal address. That's not the question. He already, already knows he's from Galilee. Where are you from? Are you a God? But Jesus gave him no answer. No answer. Pilate therefore said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Do you not understand your life is on the line here? I can have you crucified and I can set you free. And You won't answer my questions. Jesus answers, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason he, and that is Caiaphas, who delivered me up to you, has the greater sin. Wow! Pilate, you do not have authority. To crucify me or set me free. Not in an ultimate sense. You are under the authority of God above. It is He that is in control of this whole situation. This whole sham trial and crucifixion. There is a power in the universe, Pilate, that is greater than even the power of Rome. You would not have authority over me unless it had been granted to you. Apostle Peter writes in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you have anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Yes, they were gathered against the Holy One, but they were never free of the sovereign plan of God in all of this. Oh, Pilate, you may think you have authority, but you are a pawn in the hands of Almighty God, but not a guiltless pawn, Pilate. You must do what is right. Verse 12, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. He wants out. He's still not persuaded of Christ in any kind of saving way. He's cut himself off from that, but he wants out. And so he made further efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar for everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Wow. They lay the trump card on him. Boom. Remember last week I told you about Pilate's problems in Judea? How when he entered into his, his role as governor there, he brought in the the Roman standards with the pictures of Caesar proclaiming him as God and how the, the Jewish people rebelled against that and then Pilate had soldiers to slaughter them and they, and they bared their necks and said, Go ahead, kill us! And Pilate flinched. you remember that? And how time after time, Pilate tried to do something and they would outmaneuver him and he would end up backing down. And you remember how I told you they sent a delegation to Tiberius Caesar to protest the golden shields being hung in Herod's palace? And Tiberius sent back a rebuke to Pilate and said, Take the shields down, numbskull. I, mean, I don't know if he said numbskull. But I don't even know if they have numbskull in Latin or not. Somebody knows Latin, but you could tell me that afterwards. Pilate. If you release him now, a man who claims to be king, a man whom we are convinced is a rival king to Rome, an insurrectionist in opposition to Caesar, if you release him now, you're no friend of Caesar's. What that means is, Pilate, we will write to Caesar and tell him that you released an insurrectionist. You released a rival king. You fail to do your job to protect the empire. They've got him. They've got him. they backed him fully into the corner now. He's between the proverbial rock and a hard place. If he does what is right and releases Jesus, it'll cost him his career and possibly his life. By this time, Tiberius Caesar is old. And irritable and known to be violent. If he hears that a Roman governor in Palestine, notorious for their rebellious attitude, releases one of those people, one of the insurrectionists who claims to be king, he's not likely to get mercy from Tiberius Caesar. So if he does what is right, he's putting it all on the line. Or he can crucify his own soul and send an innocent man to his death. Maybe even a holy man. That leads him to his sixth attempt. Verse 13, When Pilate therefore heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Again, he's attempting to seek his release. In effect, he's saying is, look at this broken wretch. Your king. Is this what you want as your king? Is this who you're claiming is your king? Is this the one you're claiming is the threat to Rome? Look at him. Look at him. Behold your king. How can you possibly say he's a threat to Caesar? Again, perhaps there's a momentary pause. Pause. I mean, the sight of Christ must have been something that would cause people, the scripture says, they turned their face from him. Isaiah tells us that his beard was torn out, disfigured beyond belief. But quickly recovering, verse 15, they therefore cried out, Away with him! Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to him, shall I crucify your king? He is absolutely desperate at this point. The chief priests answer, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Isn't that an amazing statement? Here is the Jewish nation chafing under the rule of Rome desperate for deliverance, willing to take Jesus and make Him their political king. That is, after He fed 5,000 of them, plus women and children, right? But He would have no part of that. But they have become so blind in their hatred that they not only repudiate him, but they repudiate their messianic hope altogether. We have no king but Caesar. Not just that this one's not our king. We don't have a king at all. It was at that point, Matthew's gospel tells us, The pilot has a small bowl of water brought out. He says, I am innocent of this man's blood. And he washes his hands of the affair. And the people respond back. His blood be on us and our children. Pilot, I wish it was so easy to merely wash one's hands of it, huh? Jesus doesn't go away like that. The Jewish nation, its leadership claiming Caesar as their king. The populace saying His blood be on us and our children. The nation has gone totally apostate. Apostate. And sadly enough, it came to pass a generation, less than a generation later, when in A.D. 70, the Romans leveled Jerusalem. Took the temple apart stone by stone to retrieve the gold filigree that had melted in the heat of the fire and run down into the cracks of the stones. Not one stone will be left upon another, Jesus said. They dismantled it. And Josephus tells us that so many Jews were crucified that there was not enough wood left to build another cross, nor was there enough ground available to plant one. They ringed the city with crucified Jews. Perhaps as many as a million people slaughtered in the destruction of Jerusalem. His blood be on us and our children. And the nation was scattered worldwide to be regathered again by the Spirit of God when the new covenant comes in. You know, to a certain degree, Pilate was convinced of the truth of who Jesus was. I mean, he was certain that he was innocent, right? He declared that over and over and over again. Jesus claimed to be a king, but of a non-political kingdom. And Pilate, he doesn't dispute that. Jesus clearly behaved in an otherworldly manner in the face of this Persecution. Jesus spoke about truth and claimed to be God. Pilate knew quite a bit about who Jesus was and was convinced to one degree or another of it. But in the face of what he knew about Jesus Christ, he decided to turn away. To turn away in order to protect his earthly position. His earthly possessions. Jesus said it this way, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Some of you here this morning are in a very similar position. You know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You know that He died on a cross to take the guilt of your sin. You know that you must repent of your sin and by faith embrace Jesus Christ as your only hope for eternity. You know all that. But quite frankly, the price is too high, isn't it? You're not willing to pay it. You know that to come to Christ means that you must turn from yourself. And so you are very much like Pilate. Unwilling to do what you know to be right for fear of the cost involved. What will a man give in exchange for his own soul? Will you like Pilate, crucify your soul. I beg you. I beg you not to make his mistake. Pilate turned Jesus over to be crucified. But his troubles did not end. Just a few years later, he authorized a Another atrocity, an attack upon the Samaritans in the process of worship. A protest was sent to the Legate of Syria who oversaw that whole area, and he had Pilate removed and told him to report back to Rome. Historians tell us, this was in AD 36, that Pilate on his way to Rome to report in that Tiberius Caesar died, that's a fact, and his replacement was a man by the name of Caligula. Caligula. Now, I don't know how much you remember about Roman history, but Tiberius was bad. Caligula was worse. He was as crazy as they come and bloodthirsty. On the way back to Rome, historians tell us Pilate committed suicide and thus his life ended. After we sing this last him together. There will be some folks over here by this lighted cross. They will be there to assist you, answer any questions that you might have with regard to what you've heard this morning or the truth about who Jesus Christ is. I just urge you don't be like Pilate. Do not crucify your own soul. Let's pray.